Well, turn to John chapter 15, and we're going to simply look at verses 16 and 17 today. We've been looking at the subject of costly Christianity in John 15, and then we'll move into John 16 on the same topic. And costly Christianity says that the gift of salvation in Christ is free for the asking, but to follow Christ requires our total allegiance, requires our, our total willingness to obey Him. And we've looked at various costs of following Christ, and we come now to the cost of gospel mission. The cost of gospel mission, that to follow Christ requires that we are part of His earthly mission to see the lost saved. And so we see this mission here laid out for us in John 15, verse 16 and 17. The Lord Jesus speaking to His disciples as they are making their way toward the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Verse 17 is very much a transitional verse that summarizes the preceding section. So our focus this morning will primarily be on verse 16. The specific place was originally called Topheth, and it was in the valley of the son of Hinnom. 2 Kings 23 gives us that geography. It was an idolatrous worship center from the time of King Ahaz all the way to Manasseh. It was just south of Jerusalem. And the reason it was so terrible and idolatrous was that this was a place where children were burned alive in a fire as an offering to the false god Molech. Second Chronicles 28 describes these offerings. Ultimately, the good king Josiah destroyed Topheth in the valley of Hinnom. It was made into a garbage dump for Jerusalem's trash and was tended with a, a continually burning fire. There is evidence, though, that in the book of Jeremiah that Topheth in the valley of Hinnom may have reverted back at times to the child sacrifice practices so abhorred by God. And as punishment for this, Jeremiah in chapter Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 19 proclaimed that in the future the valley of the son of Hinnom would be called the valley of slaughter since many would be slain there and for lack of room elsewhere the dead would be buried there in Topheth in that valley of Hinnom. Topheth in the Valley of Hinnom became a symbol and an illustration for all that is loathsome. It's a symbol for destruction in general and for the eternal judgment of God in particular. The the smoke of the Valley of Hinnom was a common sight to see from Jerusalem. The continual burning of that which is discarded, that which is useless, that which is unglorious. Eventually, the Valley of Hinnom became better known by its Aramaic name, Gehenna. The Greek translation, transliteration rather, of Gehenna appears 12 times in the New Testament and is translated hell from the Old English word helle, which just means abode of the dead or place of torment for the wicked after death. And so Gehenna, hell, becomes our representation of the eternal judgment of God and Testimonies in the Bible concerning hell abound. We could look at the testimony of the Old Testament, for example. The Old Testament didn't use the same terminology to refer to hell. 
but it certainly affirms a belief in punishment of the wicked after death. The Hebrew term Sheol is used 65 times in the Old Testament, and it refers in general to the grave or to the pit of death without necessarily a reference to the death of the wicked or the death of the righteous. But other Old Testament passages help us at least build a a shadowed theology of the judgment of God. We have, for example, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, God raining, burning sulfur onto these cities while righteous Lot escaped. Now this by itself doesn't prove a doctrine of punishment after death, but it does prove a distinction between divine punishment and escape for those who are righteous. And we also see the pattern of the other destruction of the wicked. We also see the consuming nature of God's judgment in the Old Testament, what's called the harem principle. And if you're spelling it in English, H-E-R-E-M. The Hebrew word harem is often translated complete, dis- complete destruction, or you're more familiar with being devoted to destruction. Harem speaks of the irrevocable giving over of persons and things to the Lord, often by their destruction, meaning that Israel in certain circumstances were instructed by God to leave no survivors. And this becomes very distasteful to us as those who would like to stand in judgment over God. But the theologian Meredith Klein makes an important observation. He says, quote, actually offense is taken at the theology of the Bible as a whole. The New Testament, too, warns men of the realm of everlasting ban where reprobate devoted to wrath must magnify the justice of God whom they have hated. The judgments of hell are the harem principle come to full and final manifestation. And since the Old Testament theocracy of Israel was a divinely appointed symbol of the consummated kingdom of God, There is found in connection with it an intrusive anticipation of the ethical pattern that will prevail at the final judgment and beyond. The harem principle goes from the beginning to the end of the Bible. The Old Testament is explicit about a final and a comprehensive judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing. The very last verse of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 24. References a scene of the dead bodies. Of those who will have rebelled against Christ at his return. Right after their destruction. And it tells us of the destiny of their eternal souls. Isaiah 66, 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Meaning those judged by God will be an abomination to all flesh, meaning all the redeemed who do not go into this judgment. The word translated abhorrence is basically the strongest Hebrew word we have for abomination, for something that's disgusting, something that is abhorrent to us. This must be speaking of the eternal torment of those consigned to eternal damnation. Jesus confirmed this in his quote of Isaiah 66, 24 in Mark chapter 9. 
The same strong Hebrew word is used in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, abhorrence. What does that teach us, by the way? That teaches us that all people will be resurrected, some to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. Those resurrected to eternal life will have a resurrected body with which to enjoy the glories of God. And those resurrected who are wicked will have eternal bodies with which to experience the wrath of God. Agreeing perfectly with Revelation chapter 20, by the way. That's just the Old Testament testimony of hell. By the way, extra-biblical Jewish literature tells us what Jews believed between the time of the Testaments. This isn't scripture, but it is historically accurate concerning the beliefs of the time. The book of First Enoch 54 verse 1 says the place of judgment is, quote, a deep valley burning with fire. Second Enoch chapter 10 describes it as a place of terror, which includes a river of fire. Well, how about a connection between the Old and New Testaments? Our, our best connector is, of course, the testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was speaking to vast crowds who came to hear him preach as the forerunner, the announcer of the coming Messiah, Jesus. And he declared boldly of Christ in Matthew 3, verse 12, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, some will say that John the Baptist is speaking of the wicked being consumed and thus annihilated. But if that were the case, then what's the purpose of unquenchable fire? Even demons have something to say about the judgment as they will be in it. Demons have a testimony. In Matthew chapter 8, demons spoke directly to Christ and listened to their fear. Matthew eight twenty nine. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What does that tell us? It tells us the demons know there is an appointed time for their coming torment and it's conscious torment. They will know what's happening. How about the testimony of the Apostle Paul? In general, Paul includes in his writings a regular diet of the judgment of God on the lost. He describes it as ruin, death, payment, eternal destruction, wrath, indignation, tribulation, anguish, a curse, Galatians 1 verse 9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Do do we say, well, he's a nice guy, even though he denies the deity of Christ or the Trinity. That's not what Paul says. He says, let him be accursed. Anathema, literally offered up to God. By the way, this is the Greek version of the harem principle of something offered for total destruction. Speaking of God's coming judgment on the earth, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon the pregnant woman and they will not escape. Nobody will talk their way out of hell. Destruction is, by the way, not the idea of annihilation or the ceasing of existence but of total ruin, of of eternal disaster. 
In fact, the same Greek word is used in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And since God is omnipresent, since He is present everywhere, to be away from the presence of the Lord must mean to be away from His approving presence, from His presence to bless. In fact, Revelation 14 verse 10 tells us that the unbeliever will be, quote, tormented with fire and sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Who is superintending hell? Jesus is. How about the testimony of the author of Hebrews? Hebrews 9.27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And notice that your death is not annihilation. Every person who has ever lived is still alive. Every person who's ever been born is still conscious. At this very moment. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now some feel that this is speaking of the purification of useless works, which Christians will experience according to 1 Corinthians 3. And that this is simply the same sort of fire of purification by which the lost will be judged eternally. But quite honestly, commentators almost universally have seen this as one who's rejected the gospel, having, as one scholar put it, quote, trifled with the living God. And as a result, experiencing the fires of hell. In contrast, Hebrews 10.39 says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, destroyed. Same root word Paul used to speak of eternal destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. How about the testimony of Jude? Even in just 25 verses, Jude is like the, he's like the, the 11th hour addition to the Bible. Hey, Lord, can I have 25 verses? All right, we'll get you in there. And yet in 25 verses, he manages to mention hell. Verse 7 just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Oh, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't just get destroyed once. According to Jude, the people are, quote, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. We would take that as Hades, which is in Greek sort of the the waiting room for final entrance into hell, which will happen at the great white throne judgment. But according to Luke 16, Hades is a really, really good model for hell. It is the same sort of place. How about the Apostle John? Let's see if he weighs in. Speaking of this great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, beginning in verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Peter mentions hell. James mentions hell. And so we have the Old Testament 
testimony. We have the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of demons, of Paul, of the author of Hebrews, of Jude, of John, of Peter, of James. And we haven't even mentioned the one who taught on hell more than anybody, Jesus Christ himself. Matthew 5.22, the unsaved reviler, the abuser is in danger of the fire of hell. Matthew 7.13, the road to hell is wide and well-traveled. Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 12, hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, the meaning there's anger. Matthew 10, 28, we are to be afraid of God because he has the power to send you to hell. Matthew 13, hell is a fiery furnace. Matthew 23, the false believers of Israel will not escape the judgment of hell. Matthew 25, Jesus will tell those who rejected him, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Or how about right in the context of the passage we're looking at this morning, John 15, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Hell is the final place of the dead. Christ will never give another chance to repent. There will not be a second chance. There will not be a second chance. There will not be a second chance. Hell is final. Hell is eternal in that God's holiness is so infinite that offenses against His holiness are also infinite. And therefore, the punishment must be infinite. But for the redeemed in Jesus Christ, hell is the place you'll never see. The fury of God's wrath you will never taste. The sulfur in the lake of fire you will never smell. The anger of God's condemnation you will never hear. The fire of God's judgment you will never feel. And the weeping and the gnashing of teeth of the inhabitants of hell you will never experience. So I have a question for you. Aren't you glad somebody told you about Jesus? Aren't you glad somebody thought enough to not want you in hell? Aren't you glad some preacher or some mother or some father or some sister or some friend or some co-worker had the courage to say, may I tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm so glad somebody had that courage in my life that you could be forgiven of every single sin and be freed from the condemnation of God by placing your faith and trust in Christ to receive the free gift of salvation and this faithfulness to proclaim the gospel for which we are so thankful is in fact commanded by the Lord Jesus in our little text today. We've already seen in past messages that believers in Christ do bear spiritual fruit We've categorized that spiritual fruit into various types from the New Testament here and there. But the emphasis here in verse 16 is clearly on the fruit of evangelism, of being part of the gospel mission given to us by God. And so in this little text, I'd like to suggest three ways for us to understand gospel mission. To understand gospel mission, three ways that you can grasp the significance of being the light of the world, to be in salt of the earth to a dying world. The first way to understand gospel mission. Gospel mission is based in election. Gospel mission is based in election. Jesus said in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Literally in Greek, I elected you. If somebody says election is in the Bible, well, that's where we got it. It's right here. This is a salvation term that denotes God's choice of those who are his. 
Now we start here where Jesus did because some would say that the doctrine of election and the call to evangelize are mutually exclusive. That you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. That if you really believe that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, then evangelism is pointless and makes no difference whatsoever. Which, of course, is ridiculous. Because now you're denigrating the very ministry, the very focus of Jesus Christ. Jesus wholeheartedly preached election. In John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is election. And yet he proclaimed salvation by faith with repentance from sin, sometimes with great shouts and with great pleading. John 7, 37, 38 says on the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. One of my heroes of the faith, and I don't mind mentioning him almost weekly, the great Charles Spurgeon of 19th century London, he was a staunch Calvinist. He believed in the doctrines of grace. He wholeheartedly believed in the biblical teaching of sovereign election. And yet he built his whole ministry around pleading the gospel with the lost. He would have entire times where he would proclaim the gospel and instead of closing with a song or dismissing the congregation, he would say to all of his members, turn around and look and see if there's someone who does not know Christ and teach them the gospel before they leave. He fought spiritual battles against both those who would say salvation is in the power of man, the theological camp of the Arminians, and against those who would say man has no responsibility in salvation, the theological camp of the hyper-Calvinists. Arminianism says that sinners are commanded to come to faith and therefore they are able to do so. Hyper-Calvinism says they are not able and therefore cannot be commanded to come to Christ. But the Bible says sinners are unable to come and are commanded to come. That's what the Bible says. On so many occasions, in the very same sermon, Spurgeon would preach the doctrine of election and he would command the lost to come to Christ. And he did so in no uncertain terms. In one message he stated, Here the Spirit of God must come in to work in the souls of the elect to make them willing in the day of His power. That's election. Same sermon. I charge you by the living God. I charge you by the world's Redeemer. I charge you by the cross of Calvary and by the blood which stained the dust at Golgotha. Obey this divine message and you shall have eternal life, but refuse it and on your own heads be your blood forever and ever. You see, God ordains both the end and the means by which he saves. He doesn't save the lost in a vacuum without means. Election itself does not save. It's the redemption of Christ which saves and the elect are drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit using the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. And so gospel mission is based in election. Let me give you a second way to understand gospel mission. Gospel mission is required in obedience. Gospel mission is required in obedience. Jesus continues, he says that he appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. 
this is a different word, different concept than I chose you. Appointed has the idea of being placed, of being assigned, being given an assignment. And if you know your Bible here, you hear overtones of the Great Commission that Jesus will give after his resurrection. Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, the admonition both here and in the Great Commission doesn't imply that 100% of the time going means changing geographic location. Now, obviously, for the disciples, the first direct application is they ultimately would leave Jerusalem. They would proclaim the gospel all over the world. That's one of the reasons you're here today is because of their faithfulness. But you've already gone, so to speak. You've been sent to wherever you are. You are in your mission field right now at this moment. And I'll just get immediately to the good news. We've already established very clearly, I believe, in previous messages that the true Christian will bear spiritual fruit. There will be evidence of salvation. And so if you'll simply be faithful to those simple commands concerning faithfulness in the church, obey your leaders, Hebrews 13, listen to the preached words, 2 Timothy 4, serve and love one another, Romans 12, be faithful in membership and attendance, Hebrews 10, then you will bear fruit. And listen, this is very exciting. This is very exciting. This is like starting a game you know you're going to win. The means by which God saves the elect is the proclamation of the gospel and the primary vehicle of this proclamation is the local church. The church has always been at the center of every great revival in church history, always. The church was at the center of the explosion of new believers in the first century. And to this day, the church continues to be the vehicle of proclamation. And you might say, I, I'm no great evangelist. I, I'm not very articulate. I, I, I'm not even very outgoing. Or I'm not doing very much. I, I'm just serving my family. I'm raising my children, trying to make a living. I'm, I'm a plain, normal person who's never done anything great in the name of the Lord. And that, brothers and sisters, is the beauty and the genius of the invention of the church. The church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ on earth. Remember Romans 12, verses 4 and 5? For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Oh, this is the genius of God. All of you who are giving financially to the work of the ministry, are financing the proclamation of the gospel. And when you're working in a job that perhaps isn't as fulfilling as maybe you'd hoped for, the money you earn is being filtered into the kingdom. It's being filtered into souls. And in God's perfect understanding of all things, I truly believe that the Lord Jesus could, if he wanted to, tell you this Money that you gave on this date, I filtered it all the way through so that this person heard the gospel on this date and came to faith in Christ. When you clean a bathroom, you're enabling our facility to be honoring and useful and welcoming so that the gospel might be proclaimed. When you sacrifice your own comfort to go out, as as many did just now, to teach our children, to give them the gospel at the tenderest time of their lives, You are part of this gospel mission. 
When you're watching babies, you're enabling body life and the proclamation of the gospel. When you're watching the babies, pray for them. Pray for what's happening in the preaching of God's word. We have no shortage of babies. So we need all of you to pray over them and to pray for what's happening. Why do we have them out there? Because they can't understand what I'm saying so that you can. When you set up tables and chairs for an event, pray for the person who will sit in this chair. Pray for the one that will sit in this chair. Pray for the one that will sit in this chair. Pray for the one who will receive the word of God with his Bible or her Bible on this table. You're enabling the proclamation of the gospel. When you make coffee on Sunday morning, you're creating a welcoming atmosphere that encourages people to be engaged and ready. When you're faithfully proclaiming the gospel to your children at home, raising those little reprobates to know God and to know Jesus until that day when the Holy Spirit regenerates them, you're being faithful in your family and faithful families are the building blocks of a faithful church. Every single little act makes a contribution toward the furtherance of the gospel. We do not all have the same function. Our beloved Spurgeon urged men of God, and by extension all of us in the church of Jesus Christ, he said, quote, Let us arouse ourselves to the sternest fidelity, laboring to win souls as much as if it all depended wholly upon ourselves, while we fall back in faith on the glorious fact that everything rests with the eternal God. And by the way, the results of your faithfulness are eternal. They're eternal. Jesus said that your fruit will abide. And in the context of this chapter of his command in verse 4 to abide with Christ, to remain with Christ, this can only mean that the fruit he's speaking of is those who come to faith and will abide in and with Christ for all eternity. We have a a prayer that we pray for every single child that comes through our doors that the Lord might call them to salvation. Oh, and I look forward to seeing the result of those prayers of those, those children all grown up gathered around the throne of God. And all of us there saying, we prayed for you, we prayed for you, we prayed for you, we prayed for you. You might be able to track your spiritual family tree, but probably not very far But the heavenly records will show every single person who contributed at some level to you hearing the gospel of Christ. To a grandmother who prayed. To a great-grandmother who prayed for the grandmother who prayed for you. It may have been your mother telling you of Christ when you were small. It may have been the person who invited you to church. It may have been a particular sermon you heard. And you are in the list of contributors to the proclamation of the gospel simply by being faithful in the church You have helped gospel proclamation happen. Our steadfast Bible conference coming up, there will in all likelihood and by our prayers, I pray, be some who do not know Christ. And if you're simply handing out cookies or greeting or setting up, you are in the list of those who made gospel proclamation happen. Gospel mission is based in election. Gospel mission is required in obedience third way to understand gospel mission gospel mission is powered by prayer it's powered by prayer jesus makes a promise which isn't made in a vacuum it's in the context of gospel mission so that whatever you ask in, ask the father in my name he may give it to you this is so exciting this means that that your prayers for the lost will find their mark 
that God delights in saving the elect through our prayers. The one-two punch of preaching and prayer is the means by which God will bring the elect unto salvation. Now, if I could make a friendly observation to our, our Arminian brothers and sisters who staunchly defend the supposed doctrine of the free will of mankind, their belief that a person is fully capable of choosing faith in Christ of his own total volition and will. I want to make an observation. Actually, it's not an observation. I just want to tease a little, to be quite honest with you. Because if, in fact, as an Arminian, as you put forward, that we should honor and respect that a man has a free will over his own salvation and that God is not sovereignly intervening to change the heart of a man in order to bring him to faith, what do you think you're doing when you faithfully pray for the lost? When you pray, Father, let so-and-so see the light of Christ and bring him to yourself. Let him come to the cross to find forgiveness of sin. Aren't you, in fact, asking God to intervene in that person's life And aren't you asking God to violate his free will? I know he doesn't want to be saved, God, but would you make him want to be saved? Prayer for the lost only makes sense if God is completely sovereign. We pray because only God can save. So the Arminian who prays for God's intervention in the salvation of the lost really is, in fact, a closet Calvinist. Because despite an intellectual belief in free will, when an Arminian has a child who is unsaved, he begs God for help. If you're praying for the lost, welcome to biblical Calvinism. God works sovereignly through our prayers to bring the elect to salvation. The Holy Spirit germinates the seed of the gospel in his elect so that they might believe the Lord Jesus Christ and be justified. Oh, one of Spurgeon's most famous pleadings with his own congregation to be about the business of gospel prayer and gospel proclamation. It was in a sermon he preached right before Christmas in 1860. He said that if a sinner is going to be condemned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned. And unprayed for. Listen, it is not just the salvation of the lost which has been decreed by God. Our prayers for the lost have been decreed by God. And so prayer is necessary. Gospel mission is based in election. It's required in obedience and it's powered by prayer. It's powered by prayer. Don't you crave to see the lost saved? Isn't that the greatest joy of a Christian? Shouldn't that burn in your heart? Seeking the Lord that the lost might not taste hell, but instead, just as you will, know the glories of heaven. What is it that you're praying for them to experience? What is heaven? The basic fundamental idea of heaven is that it is the abode of God. It is where God lives. That's the center, that's the core of everything about heaven. It is the place of God's dwelling. The Bible speaks in very simple terms of three heavens. The first heaven is basically the sky. The second heaven is spoken of as the place of the sun, moon, and stars. And the third heaven is beyond the first and second heavens. It is the place of God. It's the dwelling place of God, the holy angels, and the deceased saints of the past. Now, just because that is the place of God's dwelling certainly doesn't mean that he's contained there. 
1 Kings 8, 27 tells us, Heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. But the fact that heaven is the abode of God is the single most important fact about heaven. And this is important for us for so many reasons. Heaven is where we direct our prayers. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. Heaven is the command post of the entire universe. Psalm 103, 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens. And His kingdom rules over all. Heaven is where the Son of God came from. John 3.13, No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Heaven is where Christ is now seated at the Father's right hand. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, and this is a phrase used to speak of heaven, on high. Angels we have heard, on high. And heaven is the place from which Christ will return again to the earth. Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. But heaven is the abode of God. This is important to us Because that's the future residence of all who have trusted Christ as Savior. It was always God's intention for created humanity to dwell in fellowship with Him, in perfect harmony with Him, in His direct presence, to see God face to face. Heaven has so many things in it. Heaven is where your treasure is. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus tells us to to lay up treasure in heaven. Heaven is where your inheritance is. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You might be poor here. You're rich in heaven. Heaven is where all your hope lies. When you feel hopeless on this earth, Colossians 1.5 says that you have hope laid up for you in heaven. Heaven is the place of your glory in Christ. Romans 8.30 says that you who are justified in Christ will be glorified, perfected in Christ, and that happens in heaven. Heaven is the place where you're called to. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, it's where your treasure is, your inheritance is, it's where your hope lies, it's where your glory is, it's where your calling is. So many blessings we could anticipate in heaven. We can anticipate the blessing of worship. Worship in song. Revelation 5, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. I love Psalm 150. Because Psalm 150 says, To praise God in His mighty heavens with trumpet and lute and harp and tambourine and dance and strings and pipe and cymbals. And for some reason, cymbals is repeated. We worship in song. We will look forward to worshiping in proclamation. Isaiah 6, 2 and 3, Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. To just proclaim over and over and over again the goodness of God. We'll worship in giving. Did you know that? Revelation 4, the 24 elders fall down before Him. 
who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We'll worship in beseeching the Lord, seeking the Lord. Revelation 6 When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And I want you to know this something, heavenly worship in song and proclamation and giving and in beseeching the Lord is so blessedly God-centered. There's a fervor, there's a yearning for God which is unmatched in even the best earthly worship. It's another blessing to anticipate, the blessing of reward. The blessing of reward, Revelation eleven eighteen. the nations raged but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. You say, well, I'm small in the kingdom, but you have a reward waiting for you. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your what? Reward is great in heaven. Every single little thing you ever did to obey the Lord, to honor the Lord, to glorify the Lord, to submit to the Lord, to love his church, to proclaim the gospel, to submit to your husbands, to love your wives, to raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. Every godly prayer, every godly hope, every godly thought, every godly word, every single deed given over to the Lord, it's all seen, it's all recorded, and it's all rewarded. How about the blessing of joy? I'll bet you can count on one hand the number of days in your life that didn't have some sort of disappointment. But Psalm 1611 says, you may make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Numbers of times, Jesus spoke in heaven in, in terms that are so earthy and familiar. He spoke in heaven as a banquet. A banquet. He promised in John 14 he was going away to prepare a place. This is the sense of making someplace ready for you. I mean, words are insufficient. We, We could try out some. We could try out words like delight and bursting happiness and relief and rest and consummation. But they don't do justice to the joy of the Lord which will so fill your soul in a way you can't possibly imagine. How about the blessing of righteousness? The blessing of righteousness, Psalm seventeen fifteen. As for me, I I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. First John three two. We will be like Christ because we'll see him as he is. Anybody who touches Christ either gets judged or becomes like him. Revelation nineteen eight. It was granted her. This is the church to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You will be like Christ. The positional righteousness you enjoyed in salvation at your rebirth will be made actual. The work of God to conform you to the image of his son will be complete. How about the blessing of glory? 
the blessing of glory. Heaven includes things like fire, thunder, lightning, smoke, rainbows. The throne of God as described in Ezekiel is absolutely mind-blowing. Wheels full of eyes. What does that mean? A crystal sky overhead, a crystal floor below with a throne looking like sapphire and gleaming metallic fire with a rainbow all around. Precious stones and metals, bronze, silver, crystal, diamond, ruby, emerald. The few biblical writers who have been given glimpses of heaven, it's almost comical how they try to describe heaven. There just aren't sufficient words to describe the magnificence of God's revealed glory and the glory of heaven itself. How about the blessing of angels? Hebrews 12 says there are innumerable angels in festal gathering. There are the cherubim, the, the guardians. There are the seraphim, the burning ones. There are the angels with the faces of lions and oxen, the eagles and men. There are angels flying overhead. There are angels proclaiming the gospel, Revelation 14. Angels coming and going to and fro, up to, up to heaven, down to the earth, carrying out their various missions, Genesis 28. Angels darting back and forth like flashes of lightning, Ezekiel 1. Angels who, according to Hebrews 1.14, ministered to you while you were on earth. God's glory will be magnified and elevated infinitely when you see the countless millions of millions of millions of angels surrounding the glorious throne of God. How about the blessing of fellowship? The blessing of fellowship, Luke 16, pictures a righteous man seated with Abraham in heaven in comfort after a hard life on earth. Anytime the saints of heaven are pictured in the book of Revelation, you know who we're with? We're always with each other. We're always together. The sweet communion we've enjoyed on earth will be extended into eternity with perfect love, perfect devotion, perfect relationship, perfect brotherhood, perfect sisterhood at a level that we can hardly comprehend. And of course, speaking of fellowship, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 promises that we will always be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our fellowship will be literally that which never separates us from Him again. And how about the blessing of preparation for kingdom life on earth? The blessing of preparation for kingdom life on earth. As Christ is preparing to return to earth, we see who's with Him. Revelation 19, verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Just six verses earlier, these armies are identified as the bride of Christ, the church. Revelation 20, verse 4, shows us thrones of resurrected believers, quote, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Luke chapter 19, in the parable of the minas, Jesus rewards faithful servants with kingships over cities. Your purpose as image bearers, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, who rule alongside the living God as vice regents on earth will be fulfilled. First in the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, and then in the final state of new earth, Revelation 22. And all of that is just heaven as it is now. That's before the remaking of the heavens and the earth and the dawning of a new time on the new earth in the new Jerusalem. That's what you can expect immediately upon your arrival. And by the way, just to note things that won't be in heaven, your sins, your past, your failures, your rebellion, your miseries, your pain, 
your disappointments, your weeping, they will all be gone. Go and bear fruit that the lost might be saved, that they may never know the misery of hell and only know the glory of heaven. Have that moment in heaven when you look across the glorious courtyard of the throne of God and you see the one that you were praying for and praying for and never knew what happened and you jump up and down and you shout because there he is. He's there. When I was a little boy, my grandmother gathered all the living relatives we had at one of those family reunions you're trapped into coming to and you see those cousins that you really don't like but you have to pretend to. And she gathered us all together and she grabbed people and she said, I'm going to be in heaven soon and I want to see every one of you. And she begged and she pleaded and she implored. Go and bear fruit. No price is too great. No cost is too high for gospel mission. Amen. Our Father, we are helpless before you. We were helpless before salvation in that we hated all things godly. We ran from Christ, but the Holy Spirit took a hold of us and dragged us to the cross, and we praise you for that. I praise you I did not have a free will because if I had a free will, I would have chosen to live hell on earth until I reached hell in eternity. I praise you for salvation and the, the free gift that you have given. And we also stand helpless before you to save anyone around us. We're, we're not capable any more than those before us could save us. We're not capable of saving those that we deeply care about and we're concerned for. We're not capable of saving the wicked around us. But you are. You are. Lord, I pray for a revival among us. I pray for all those that we as, a, as, as individuals in this body have been praying for, that you would bring many to faith in Christ. I pray for a night, Lord, on a Sunday evening when we have to baptize 20 or 30. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to go and to bear fruit and by the power of the Spirit drawing the lost unto Christ, that you might answer our prayers. Lord, we would even pray for the Steadfast Bible Conference that there would be a man or a woman there not saved and they would hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. I pray for the many family members of those in our midst that that we're aware of, extended family and children and parents who have not yet come to faith. We lift them up to you. We, We beseech you for their souls, Lord, and we ask you to save them. I pray for those among us, Lord, who are perhaps a little bit cold in our care for the gospel and for the mission of Christ. Relight the fire under us, Lord, to see the lost saved. Relight the fire under us to be faithful in the church in whatever way we can, such that the body working together proclaims Christ to a dying world. I pray for those even listening via the website or other media means, Lord, that there might be some who come to faith in Christ because of the gospel mission being funded by this local church here. Do your work, build your church, and might we be the ones that have a part in that. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.